Hello, welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast. I'm Jan Marshall and with me today is Aviva Burzon. Aviva is a consultant who facilitates on a number of our executive education programs here at the school, specialising in developing leadership capabilities, particularly in the areas of influential communication and conflict management. She's also a specialist on change and the psychology behind people's natural appetite or resistance to change in the workplace. We'll be talking a bit about that today and also the key success factors for change. Aviva, what do we need to be aware of in terms of, say, the emotional side of change? What do people go through in a change process? There's an interesting activity that I run with participants where I'll get two groups, I'll divide the room into two and the instructions will be for one group to think of a time when they were um, in initiating change, they were leading the change, and to use some pictures to help them focus on the emotions that that experience elicited. The other half of the group will be asked very similar instructions, but they'll be asked to think of a time when change was done to them and to look at some pictures and from that come up with the words that relate to the feelings that they felt during that experience. But the room won't know that half the group has been given one set of instructions and the other half has been given a different set. So the group will, will speak in their tables, come up with words, and then I'll start eliciting those words from the group as a whole. And you start seeing that there's these two very distinct categories of emotions where people will be talking about feeling excited, empowered, perhaps overwhelmed, um, pressure, enthusiasm, determination, charge. And then you'll get words about feeling daunted and oppressed and disengaged and disenfranchised and dreading coming to work. And there will be this sharp, sharp, distinct difference and people will be looking at each other and the room will be in giggles almost because how is it that the same experience of change in theory is eliciting such different emotions? And then there's a bit of an unveiling because we realise that actually there were different instructions. Very much coming down to change done to you versus change done by you. Um, and then, you know, it's quite obvious that when you are initiating change, when you're in charge of it, yes, there are also, there's a whole spectrum of emotions, but on the whole, it's mostly positive because you're you know, feeling empowered, as opposed to when you are the recipient of change, often not informed soon enough, not consulted in a genuine way, if at all, and your life being made more difficult more often than not. So change in itself is difficult and we look at, um, you know, you can talk about resistance and, and there's many things that create resistance to change, but the fact that people are not included in the process and not feeling like that's their journey that they're part of is a very, very big factor. And with your participants, did you notice that any of them were a little bit surprised by, you know, they've probably both been, been they've been on both sides yeah, of change, yeah. But were they surprised when those emotions were brought together in the one room to see, does that result, that difference? You know what? There's usually no surprises. Yeah, right. The minute we, the instructions become clear and it becomes apparent that there were two different sets of instructions, we're like, of course. But it's one of those things where it's common knowledge. There's no surprise that when people are involved and engaged in the process of designing the change or having a say towards the change, it's much more of a positive experience than when it's just done by you. So it's common knowledge. But unfortunately, engaging people along the way is not common enough practice. So imagining that perhaps by bringing them in the room together like that and displaying the emotions on both sides helps people, particularly if they're instigating change, perhaps remember what it's like to be on yeah. the other side. Yeah. And one of the key messages is always, no matter what 
type of change it is that we're talking about. And no matter whether it's been something that you're driving or it's been mandated from above, find the opportunities to engage people, find the opportunities to not just consult with them and then go and do your own thing, but genuinely listen to people, hear what their concerns are, because often concerns are valid. Um, don't promise things you can't deliver. So don't tell people I'm going to listen to your concerns and then take them into account and potentially not. So it is about setting up expectations, but be realistic. Like if, if it's uh, something where you can tweak or modify or improve the, the change that you're trying to initiate by taking into account people's recommendations, often that impl actually improves what you're trying to do. People's feedback in a business, in an organisational setting is often very, very valid because they're on the ground. They know what's going on. They understand the, the details which often the big picture thinkers who are strategising about change tend to overlook. So there's a group response to, to change as you, you experienced in that uh, exercise. And I imagine there's an individual response to change that can that's be right. quite different one from another. Absolutely, yeah. So that, that's the thing, you know, yes, whether you're the person doing change or initiating it or having it imposed upon you, that definitely triggers different sets of emotions. But there is natural tendencies um, and there are change styles, predominantly three actually. The, the model that we use, it's called the change, the tool is the change style indicator, and it categorizes people into three natural preferences, which is very much like thinking about writing with your right or left hand. You know, if you're right-handed and I ask you to sign your, your signature, it'll be pretty easy. You'll do it quickly without even thinking. If I ask you to do the very same thing, but with your left hand, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, you sort of have to do it slowly and thinking about it. And it's not to say that you can't do it, of course you can do it and with practice you'll get better and better at it but it's not natural with change it's the same sort of thing you have your natural default preference when it comes to change and you can operate beyond that but that's not going to be what you do in situations of high stress or unless you practice with awareness and consciousness other ways of operating so the three styles are conserver so the people who like to maintain the status quo, like to maintain order, you're going to have to create a pretty good reason to, to justify change otherwise, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So you've got your conservers, you've got your originators, there's those people who are super excited by change, always jumping on the new thing, love ideas and starting change initiatives, not necessarily the best at implementation, sort of potentially get a little bit over the detail and want that to be left to other people, but very, very energized by change. And those two groups make up for 25% of the population each. And the remaining 50% are the pragmatists. They're the ones who, depending on the merits of the situation, will either lean towards conserver behaviours or lean towards originator behaviours. So if it doesn't make sense to make change in this situation happen, they'll, they'll understand the merits of the situation and not push for it. But if there is a good case, they'll understand that as well. They'll see that. They'll need that to be, um, I guess, confirmed and validated. Um, but they will be more likely to lean towards change. And people fall along the spectrum and it's a continuum. So some people might have originator tendencies even though they're pragmatists or conserver tendencies. But the thing when you're working in a workplace with pragmatists and that's going to be on average 50% of the people you work with, sometimes those people seem inconsistent. So you might come to them one time with a change initiative and they're all for it and then they're potentially going to be quite resistant. You think, but I thought you liked change. So it does, these, these tendencies, these default styles do play out. Um, and that's why you sometimes think, well, what's the big deal? You know, why aren't you seeing what I'm seeing? And, and it, it does very much come down to natural preferences. 
So as a, as a leader of change, how might you cater to these different groups? Is that sort of messaging or is it, uh, what, what do you do with yeah. them? I mean, the first thing that I'd always like to think about is that if I'm involved in change and I'm dealing with a group of people, I will be dealing with pragmatists, conservers and originators because you've got 50% of your population in general who are pragmatists and then 25% who are either conservers or originators. So you need to be going outside of your preference. And you see these aha moments where you get the different groups talking to each other, where originators sometimes ask, but why do you need all this follow-up communication? You know, we asked you, asked you for your opinion, we got your ideas, and we're, we're moving on with it. And then conservers will say, well, I like to be looped back in because there's a sense of completion and fairness. And, and I want to know that not just my word, my opinions are being taken into account, but my, my team members and other people. So there's a sense of equity, which is consistent with that detail orientated, make sure it makes sense before acting mentality. I guess the key message is you are dealing with all sorts um, and you shouldn't be just constrained by what you think is important or what you think is appropriate. So people tend to, the people who are asking for more information, for more detail to be included in the communication process and to have looping back, they're not doing it to be obstinate or to be difficult or to be obstructive. Their own style and their own relationship will change, with change will sometimes get them to want more re information, seek more reassurance, get more validation. So one of the key things that always comes up is that you can't communicate enough. Like, there is no risk of over-communicating, but there are significant risks of under-communicating. Because, for example, the conservers or the pragmatists who want to make sure that the decision that's being made is robust and validated and thought through, they need that information. Um, likewise, conservers, when dealing with pragmatists with an or originator orientation or with originators, they have to understand that this level of questioning or this level of seeking of detail will potentially frustrate and lead others to, to think that this is slowing down the process. So it is about perspective sharing. It is about understanding that other people have needs or preferences that are different to my own. But how can I step outside of myself, especially as a leader, when you will be having to do things in your role that are quite different to potentially your own preference? Um, for example, pragmatists tend to play mediator role because they want everyone to be included. If you're a leader that's been told you have to make this happen, it's not your responsibility to facilitate just dialogue. You have to also get things moving. So it's firstly self-awareness, being conscious of your own preference, and also understanding what the situation needs and that there are different needs out there by the, the various stakeholder groups that you'll be engaging with. I'm aware and I've, I've done courses myself mm. in uh, change and there's lots, it seems like a whole lot of models of change out yeah. there to choose from. What advice would you have for people when yeah. they look over, especially if they're new, you know, yeah. and they're looking over this wide range of yeah. things? When I think of models for change, I think of them in two camps. There are models, and there'll be various models for the same sort of purpose, but there will be models that help you understand the psychology of change. And I think that's really, really important because there are states, psychological states that people go through, and very much like the grieving process after um, there is a death, you go through those stages. And while at the time it might not look like there is an order and it might feel chaotic, when you look back, there is a pattern. And organizationally that happens as well. So I think it's really important to understand the psychology of change because that, that helps you understand why things sometimes don't move as quickly as you want. And that's a mindset thing. It's about, th that will help you understand where people are at at any given time. I can go into more detail about that in a moment. But the other category of models are very much around the process of change, planning change. And they 
they vary in, in, in some ways, but they're quite similar because it's always about sort of initiating, planning, communicating, institutionalizing. And there'll be slightly different orders and there'll be different wording, but those are fundamentally the, the sort of the, the chunks. It's about having a plan, having a model, using that to, to start your planning that, to start your planning, using that to diagnose if things are going off course, using that as a checklist, but more importantly, just doing that thinking, doing that planning, thinking about who are my stakeholders, who am I, what sort of communications am I going to employ? How am I going to deal with the resistance? Thinking about things like psychology of change, what li likely resistance will come up, thinking about the fact that I've got conservers and originators and pragmatists, how are people going to react? Having a plan, using that as a starting point, but recognizing that things never go to plan. They just don't, you know, it's a good starting point, but you'll be often doing things concurrently, continuously, going back and forth, looping from step one to step five to step one, if, you know, if you're using a model that's step orientated, and not thinking, not thinking that I can tick something off the list, rest on my laurels and know that because I've gone and had a communication session or sent out a, an email, an on mass email to the organization that that part of the communication plan, for example, is done. We're dealing with people. People are driven by needs, by concerns, by fears, by resistance to loss, loss of a whole host of things. And if that's the case, you have to be taking this slowly. You have to be going slow to go fast. You really do. Let's pause now for a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. To those chosen to come here and to the organisations they represent, congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Aviva, before the break, we were talking about the number of different change models. Can we return to that briefly and dig a little deeper? So there are many different models. I use a model that um, was developed by a Swedish psychologist called Klaus Janssen, and it takes people through the four rooms of change. The idea being that in any change or on an individual level, when anyone's contemplating or going through change, they start in the room of contentment. Life is good. I'm happy. I'm going about my BAU. I'm doing things as I would. I'm not thinking about anything else. Eventually things start shifting, whether it's stuff in the market, a new CEO has been employed. There are signs of change in the air, but people tend to then move into the room of denial, which happens either slowly and gradually. You know, the, the, the system around is syndicating that things are not the same, but people want to maintain the status quo. They want to operate as though they're still in the room, room of contentment. Or it's like a, a sudden sharp fall. So they're told, you know, there are going to be redundancies or this, the team is being restructured. What, the difference, I guess, between the room of denial and the room of contentment is that you are trying to maintain the facade of contentment, like nothing has changed, but there's frustration that's under the surface. There's a sense of um, unease because on some level, often unconscious, you know that things are changing. And the next room is the room of confusion and conflict, and people tend to oscillate between the two rooms. So they're in this, they move from this psychological state of this change is not going to affect me, it's not really going to happen to I don't know what this means, this is overwhelming, and then back to it's not relevant, my, it's not going to touch my role, and then, oh no, but 
but I'm scared and, and, and I don't understand what, what I should be doing next. And, and it's really, it's like imagine a rotating door and you're going back and forth, back and forth until people hit what's known as the zero point. That might be an announcement by the manager of the, the team, for example, saying you're being, your role is being made redundant or we are going through a restructure and your role is changing. It's like this bucket of cold water is poured on somebody or the, the clear, clear understanding is the bus is moving, you either get on it or you get off. And it's from that point on that hard work starts to happen because change, if you're getting on board with the change, you have to move away from that contentment because that's not, re, that's not viable anymore. The, you know, the world around you has changed and you have to adjust. You know, does that mean taking on new work in a new role or potentially starting to consider different opportunities, updating your resume and all these things that you don't want to be doing? But eventually you do make signs of progress. Eventually through the effort, you start seeing little wins. Like if you are thinking about a new role, you'll get some opportunities with a recruiter. You might get some job offers. You might start feeling, starting to feel inspired, charged, motivated. And then you could find yourself in a new role. You could find yourself working on interesting projects, meeting new people, expanding your network, developing new skills. And then that final space, that far last room is what's called the room of renewal. And that's when the, the effort is re reaping its rewards and it's quite a high energy, dynamic, creative space. Space of innovation, it's the space of creation. Obviously not sustainable forever. <laughs> Eventually, we want comfort, we want security, we want the known. So you do fall back to the room of contentment, which is the new normal, but it's a better normal. It's a richer normal. It's a, it's a normal that's benefited from the change process that's gone on. And that's why it's a round cycle, you know, from contentment to denial to confusion and conflict to renewal. People can't live in that space of renewal forever. So the cycle goes around and around and around. And as a leader of change, it's about recognizing that whether it's in a, a minute or years, people do move through these rooms and your role is to move people through the rooms as quickly as, as is needed for the situation. So is it worth a, a leader doing this diagnostic yeah. on their group to see where they're at in a particular change yeah. cycle? And should an individual use this model themselves to do a little bit of a check to say, yeah. I'm feeling like this, maybe these forums of change help me understand, well, that's quite normal, uh, you know, to feel like this right now, this is where we're at. I think it's really important to recognise that whether it's it seems that at the time or not, everyone goes through these rooms of change. And sometimes you might say, but no, you know, I was given this opportunity and I jumped on it. I was really excited. And I would say, how were you feeling before that? Was there frustration going on for you? If you were so quick to um, enter into the space of the room of renewal and get involved in the creativity and the energy of the change, maybe you're already frustrated with something going on in your world. So the first thing to point out is that we do go through these, these rooms of change. Um, it's just not always obvious at the time. And people go through them at different times. So in a team and in an, in an organization, there are different parts of the organization that are subsisting in the different rooms. So if you think about leaders of change, so a senior leadership group that have been charged with the change initiative, they've had time to process the change, to grapple with it, to potentially feel overwhelmed by it and then start acting on it. So they get to that room of renewal, at which time they'll go talk to middle management who are just starting to get their heads around it. So they'll probably be somewhere between denial and confusion and conflict at which time the people on the ground have no idea this is going on. So they're you know, either in contentment or, or denial. So at the very same time, 
different parts of the organization are in different rooms. So you need to be strategic. You have to understand that firstly. And as somebody who's in the room of renewal, remind yourself of what it was like to be in the other rooms, remind yourself of where other people are at, and then have strategies to move people along those, that journey through those four rooms of change. So Aviva, bringing all that together and considering models of change and the psychological process of change, what could you advise people? How can they think about all of this now? Um, it's really interesting. When I get participants to come up with strategies to move people and groups within the organisation through the rooms of change, so taking the psychology into account, and then teach a model like Cotter's Eight Steps of Change, which is classical change management implementation process planning. And then I say, okay, so we've looked at the psychology of change. We've looked at more clinical process-orientated change management. Do the two line up? And then I get people to look at the strategies they came up with to move people through the rooms of change and something like Cotter's Eight Steps, and it's exactly the same. For example, you know, create a sense of urgency through creating the notion of a burning platform. That's how you get people out of contentment to, to move through denial, to recognise and admit that there's a case for change. Likewise, that's how, what you have to do in an organisation to get people to want to change things up and be prepared to, to move the dial in, in some way. So any good change implementation plan has to take into account the psychology of change. So the models that relate to psychology of change and the models that relate to change implementation, they marry up. If they didn't, there'd be something wrong. It would mean that the people element, the people element, which is you know, the people who are impacted by and impacting on the change, it's their psychological states and their emotions that are going to either drive positively or negatively the change in the first place. So good change planning, change management planning has to take into account the psychology of change. So it doesn't really matter what model you use, it's about recognising that there is a psychological journey and any plan, any process around managing change has to take that into account. I've often heard people say too that it's difficult to come up with that burning platform because mm. perhaps a leadership group is really aware of the external forces that are coming. It's like a storm on the horizon that they can see, but it's hard for others who, you know, may not see that storm coming yeah. um, to really uh, embrace that urgency. Have you any thoughts to offer people around that? Yeah, I think communication is key and consistency. So if you have an organisation that's saying, Times are tough, markets are, the market's changing, the industry's shifting, we're getting disrupted, we're behind, we're not making budgets, we're not making the sales that we need. So you say all that stuff, but then the reward systems don't change. Mm. There are still bonuses, there are still the same sort of end of year celebrations with the same level of elaborateness, for example, or salaries go up at the same rate. If I'm an employee and I'm being told that think times are tough, but I'm actually not seeing anything within the system that's reflecting that. It's okay for me to sit back and think, yeah, yeah, change is happening, but it's not going to happen to me or it's not going to affect me. Mm. So the system needs to reinforce itself. There needs to be consistency. So that means as a leader, as a manager, you might need to make some tough decisions. Like this year we're having a pay freeze. And until things improve and until we adjust to the environment and do what we need to do to let the business be agile or, or adaptive, we're not going to be able to get to where we need to be. So there have to be, I think, some tough measures to demonstrate that there isn't a burning platform, not notionally, but I can feel the fire under my feet. Unless I feel that fire, I'm not going to jump in the water. Why would I if I'm comfortable there? So that's one example, and it doesn't always have to be as severe as not giving people their bonuses or pay rises, but honest, frank, 
consistent, backed up, validated communications, I think are really, really important. You've mentioned communication quite a few times and its its importance in the successful process of change. What other success factors might people need to keep in mind? Great question. So um, ProSci, who are one of the global leading companies in researching change, and they do a lot of work in the change space, they've done, every year they put out quite extensive research. And one of their key pieces of research around the success factors of change. So they talk to experienced practitioners, project leaders, executives, consultants, a whole host of people with usually between four to 12 years of experience in implementing change and they say what are the success factors what's important you know what is it that with that you are more likely to have a successful change that sticks in the organization and without that change is likely to not stick and and a point worth making is that all the research all the evidence and all the anecdotal evidence shows that about 70 percent of change doesn't last doesn't stick either doesn't stick or doesn't get off the ground 70 percent is a high high number it is a high number. It's a really it's, high number. It's a big investment to, yeah. of resources yeah. that uh, amounts to nothing or worse. Yeah. 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 So considering that there is such a high failure rate, if you want to use that crude language around change, it's important to look at things like research that do demonstrate that these factors are central and critical for successful change. So pro-size research, I think, is really important. And the seven factors that they say are fundamental to having successful change are active and visible executive sponsorship, no surprise there, but often not, not available, or sometimes I should say not available, but if not available, really hard to get change um, to go anywhere. Having a structured change management approach, so actually planning around that. Um, Dedicated change management resources, whether it be through people or um, tools, um, people being trained as well. Frequent and open communication about the change and the need for change, really, really important. Um, Employee engagement and participation. Integration and engagement with project management. So that's that's something that wasn't always a factor, but it's very much coming and is quite topical in today's business climate because project management is seen to be a key leadership capability Um, and engagement with and support from middle managers which in terms of the seven didn't rank as highly as you might think because stuff like having active and visible executive sponsorship is seen to be more of an important factor now sometimes people get stuck on the order the idea is these are seven things that are all important and without any of them it's really really hard to have successful change which might explain why 70 percent of change doesn't go anywhere so you say without any of them it's hard to have successful change but i imagine all of them are critical yeah they're they're all critical um some are some other ones that you would be investing more energy in for example getting that support from from the top level of the organization but if you don't have for example engagement from middle managers well they're the people who are communicating to the people on the ground so you have to do all of these things you have to factor in all of these things not easy perhaps it has to be done Aviva, is there any last thoughts you'd like to share with us in the process of change? Yeah, look, I think talking about this a lot with with my colleagues, with clients, with participants, and, and just generally working in the leadership space, I think about this as anything that involves 
motivating and engaging people. Your change is about mobilizing people. It's about influencing. It's about generating energy for activity. And to do that, you need to connect on a personal level. You need to recognize that I'm engaging with a whole lot of individuals who have their concerns, their needs, their fears, their habits, their rituals. So you need two things, I think, to be successful in leading change. And all of the other tools and models and methods, I think they really support them. Firstly, you need to be able to build relationships and build trust. You need to develop that rapport. You need to connect on the human level. And secondly, and I think this is a means to do this, you need to be able to listen, to genuinely listen. So if you ask a question, be prepared to hear the answer. It doesn't mean you're going to act on the answer. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with the answer, but you're going to, I think it's important to give the person the space and the time to be heard and to, rec to for them to feel that and then manage the expectations around what you'll do with that information. If you can listen to people and you can build a rapport and build their trust, your job becomes a partnership. It becomes a group effort, not you alone going uphill. If you can do that, I think it makes change a lot more manageable. Aviva, thank you for joining us today. It has been fascinating talking to you about the psychology of change. If you'd like to hear more on change, be sure to listen to some of our other podcasts in our change series or visit our website at mbs.edu.